And now I'm very excited to welcome to the platform Cal Kiram. Oh my. So Cal has had this message on his heart, uh, and it was uh, going to be a little five-minute share time, and as we, I kept hearing what he was saying and whatnot, uh, we discovered it was more than a five-minute share time. <laughs> it was a message. So we are thrilled to be able to uh, have Cal open up God's Word and lead us today. So let me pray for him. Dear God, Lord, I thank you so much for my brother. I thank you for this Word you've put on his heart. And I pray that you would encourage us as we hear your voice in your word. May it change us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you, team worship. This morning was awesome. Uh, it's taking me a while to compose myself because it was very spiritually emotional for me this morning. So um, thank you guys for hearing me out. Several of you asked me this morning if I'm ready. And my answer to that is it doesn't matter. Okay, uh, it's not about me and being ready. Yes, I've put in hours of trying to get slides together, praying, having others pray for me, looking at different things on the internet to research, but it's really not about me or my eloquence or what I'm gonna tell you today. Today is God's message for you. I believe that firmly. I believe there's at least one person in this audience who needs to hear this, and I know I sure do. So. With that, one of the nice things about doing your own PowerPoint is you get to feature your own photographs. Uh, this is a picture from Ruby Beach this winter. In fact, if you looked way in the distance, you could probably see Destruction Island way out there on the horizon. But anyway, I get to show off some of my photography skills. Um, so we're going to be talking about the healing at the Pool of Bethesda, which is John 5. I chose verses 1 through 9. There's more to it than that, but we can go from it from there. So, next slide, tell you a little bit about myself. I think most of you, let's see, is this working? There you go. You guys know me like this as the drummer, or as Larry calls me, the rock star. I honestly don't think of myself as a rock star. If any of you follow the band We the Kingdom, I'd like to think of myself as the drummer from We the Kingdom in an older, more, more mature version. But uh, that man brings energy, and hopefully I bring energy too. But it was funny to me, one of the supper sixes, I'm sorry, not supper six, the feast that we went to, somebody asked what we were doing, and people were shocked to know that I have this role too, I'm a doctor. More specifically, I'm proud to say I'm a pediatrician, which means I take care of kids from birth up to age 21. And uh, that's my, my day job, so to speak. And that's what got me interested in anything in the Bible about healing, but potentially more about this particular passage. In the next slide, I just want to introduce you to my support group. Uh, so this is my kids and my wife from last, what was it, May? When we did that? This is from May, May or June, uh, when this one graduated. This is my youngest. She's Kirsten. She's now a freshman at Arizona State University, uh, just absolutely crushing it, being an environmental engineer. She's the one who I think is going to be the one who dreams of making the world a better place now and in the future. Uh, this is my son-in-law, Vladimir. Vladimir is from Romania. He has a doctorate, so I'm not the only doctor in the family uh, by any stretch. He's got a doctorate in music. He's a violinist. He plays professionally for some symphonies. And if you guys remember, a few weeks ago, he was here playing electric guitar, and he's a pretty wicked... Uh, oh, sorry, that's probably not the right word to use. A pretty amazing uh, electric guitar player. 
Uh, this is my eldest daughter, Caitlin, and she's married to Vladimir. Uh, she went to Arizona State. She got two degrees because she's an overachiever. And one of them was in clarinet performance, but I think she decided that she could find a better career than that. So she went to law school, so she's also got a doctorate. And uh, she's now a lawyer at a big healthcare law group in Chicago. This one is Caleb, my middle son. Uh, Caleb is the computer guru who finished college early, landed his dream job at Apple, and then decided after being there for a while that he didn't like walk, working for the big guy and decided to go take a better job at an app called Notability. If any of you guys use Notability, Caleb's a big part of that app development. And then, of course, my wife, Stacy, who's been with me through thick and thin, through better and for worse, and who's been a big prayer partner and support. Next slide. Um, I can't fail to acknowledge this family, though, too. I couldn't find a better slide, because we don't like have a picture of all of us, like the big collage, right? Maybe we need to do that sometime this summer. But um, over the years, and we've been here since 96, um, I've been really lifted up by this congregation in so many ways, men and women who've been godly influences for me, who've prayed for me, prayed for my kids, been there for us in tough times. And I just, I can't be negligent in thanking all of you. And I've got a group of people who this last week or so have been praying for me especially and sending me encouragement. And I really appreciate that. So thank all of you guys for that. Um, the other thing I would say about Elam, I've had several different roles since I've been here. I've been an elder. Um, as I was telling Josh and Lars today, somehow it feels like even when you're not on the elder board, you're still kind of an elder in some ways. Ergo, you get asked to preach. Um, but uh, the other thing is I've been an adult education teacher. I've been a Sunday school teacher. No, Beth, you didn't hear that if you're in here. Uh, uh, let's see, what else? Well, I've been a musician. That's the most recent thing. So I've been pretty involved with Elam. So next slide. I'd like to, to look at the passage of Scripture, and I'm going to try to read it aloud. Hopefully I won't fumble this too much, but this is from the Gospel of John, the NIV version, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish religious festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and heard that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, and he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. It's my prayer that I can bring to you, not my words, but the Holy Spirit's words about this passage. And... I just hope, like I said, it can touch at least one other person besides me today. So if you give me the next slide, Lars, I wanted to give you a little bit of what I consider the fun part of this message. Well, all of it's fun, but this is more fun. The Bethesda pool itself. Uh, if you look at the next slide, one of the nice things about our faith is that it's rooted in real archaeology and reality. 
So this is actually part of the Bethesda pool that's been excavated. Uh, it was probably in use for about 200 years before the time of this story. Unfortunately, it got built over after the destruction of Jerusalem in uh, 70 AD. It got built over first by Romans, then the, the Byzantines, then the Crusaders, etc. And so they started on the actual excavation and archaeology of this site probably in about sometime in the 1800s. Uh, I didn't actually write it down in my notes, so I don't want to give you a wrong number. But the excavation had to cease, and it's never going to get to probably proceed any further because it's surrounded by all these other buildings. This is, I believe, the Chapel of St. Anne, and there's homes over here. So there's only one side of the pool that's actually <clears throat> open that you could actually get under and do any excavation at. One of the things that I find interesting about this, this is a map of the actual temple at Jesus' time, and then the pool of Bethesda is right up here. I also included in this map the other pool that's mentioned in the New Testament that we may talk about a bit called the Pool of Siloam. But when I read this account, I didn't realize that the pool was not in the temple. It's probably just my weird brain, but when you read that Jesus is going up for a religious festival, I assume that when he went to the pool, the pool was where the religious festival was inside the, uh, inside the temple. But there's actually a good reason why it's probably outside the temple, and we'll hopefully get to that in a minute. So if you give me the next side, this is an actual model of what it looked like, probably. And I'm going to call this out for a couple of things. Again, archaeology collaborates our faith. There's the sheep gate right there that goes into the temple. The sheep gate was probably where the sacrificial lambs were put into the temple for the temple sacrifices. Uh, over here, you can't quite see it, is the other pool, the pool of Israel that you saw on the map. Now, the thing about the pool of Bethesda is that it's actually two pools. There's a northern and a southern one. And the one where we're talking about is this southern pool right here. There's a dam that's in between the two pools. And there's a fifth portico, or to use the words that the NIV uses, colonnade in between the upper and the lower pool. And so for years, people thought that they were looking for a five-sided pool because John said that there were five covered colonnades. But, and they were thinking, well, this is just made up in John's mind because we never found a five-sided pool. Well, it turns out there's one, two, three, four, five covered porticos, and it's not a five-sided pool. So there you go. The uh, thing about this, <clears throat> this is sitting in a valley, and this upper or northern pool was probably used to collect runoff water and stream water and hold it back as a reservoir to replenish this lower pool. This lower pool is probably what's called a mikvah. Am I saying that right, Ryan? A mikvah is a place where Jews could go to be ceremonial, ceremonially cleansed. And that's why it makes sense that it's outside the temple because you needed to be cleansed before you went in. So <clears throat> the uh, thing is, a mikvah can only be fed by what's called living or live or natural water. It can't be hand-carried and it can't be pumped up. So this pool would collect the natural or live water and then there were 
various conduits in this dam that will allow it to go into the lower pool. And I believe by Jewish tradition, and again, Ryan might correct me if I'm wrong, once they mixed even a little bit of this living water into the mikvah, all the other water in there is considered ritually pure. So that's, that's part of the reason this is um, designed this way. Now I want to look quickly at the next slide. I don't have enough time to really go into this in detail, but I'm going to just tell you that my studies indicate that at the time of Jesus and this healing, there was probably all three of these influences at the pool. Again, it was probably used as a mikvah, so the Jews would purify there. There were probably some pagan influence, and there's definitely some superstitious influences going on in here. If you look carefully at the verses on your sermon notes, you'll notice something's missing, and it's not a typo. And I'll give you a hint. I won't ask. I know. I know. Oh, do you want to say what it is? Four is missing. Yeah, the verse four is missing. Now, before you get all wigged out that somebody stole that verse from your Bible, that's not how it works. Um, the, when the New Testament was written, well, the Old Testament too, they didn't have verse numbers in there. Those were added in about 1500, I believe, somewhere in that area. The chapter and verse numbers were added for our benefit to help us look them up. Let's just say that there's good, substantial evidence that verse 4 didn't belong in the original text. Verse 4 is the verse that actually talks about an angel coming down and stirring the water and letting the first person in be healed. That's probably an older superstitious belief. It may have even been related to pagan, and I could go into more of it with you uh, one-on-one if you'd like. In fact, I should mention that now before I forget because I didn't mention it at the start. Anybody wants to go deeper in this study? I'm available. I'd love to go through it with you. And anyway, so John 4 is not in there, and there's a purpose for that. I think John 4, this issue of the angel coming down, stirring the water, and the first person in is not a God thing. That doesn't, there's no other model for that in the Bible where if we get to do something first, God's going to bless us and everybody else is a loser. That just doesn't sound like anything else in the Bible. So it's probably an add-on, and that's what makes me think there was a lot of superstition about this whole process. So, next slide. If you go to there, I think you have to kind of understand a little bit about the Gospel of John to understand this story. So for some of you, this is going to be like, yeah, duh, and some of you are going to be going, oh, that's interesting. You know, the Gospel of John was the last of the four Gospels written. It was written by John the Apostle, who was both Jesus' beloved and also a son of thunder, which I find kind of interesting. Uh, a man with passion and, and energy and, uh, you know, just a lot of uh, good qualities, but some were mischanneled sometimes. Uh, John doesn't, require any gene doesn't record any genealogy or birth history of Jesus. He doesn't, rec doesn't record any of the calling of the disciples. They're already in the gospel. They, John just assumes that we know there's a disciples following Jesus. The focus on John is really on Jesus as God and man. In fact, if you have one scripture passage that you want to try to memorize, I'd suggest the first chapter of John. Because it's just, to me, one of the most beautiful and moving chapters in the, in the whole New Testament. 
He focuses on the fact that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. He focuses on Jesus as being the one who's full of grace and truth. And Jesus, the one who makes God known to us. And that's just beautiful. That's really John's focus in this gospel. He also doesn't include every single event. If you look at John 21 and John 22, you'll see that he flat out says, if I recorded every event, there wouldn't be enough room for all the books that would need to be recorded. The whole world wouldn't have enough room, right? And he also tells us that what he's recorded was done so that you may believe and know that Jesus is God and is your Savior. And so, have life in his name is actually the, one, the word, wording I was looking for. Basically, the third thing is, if he records something, there's multiple spiritual truths revealed to it. I'll give you a, Ryan asked me not to do the, this whole study I did, so maybe that's another sermon. But let's talk about, just real briefly, John 2. In John 2, Jesus and his disciples go to a wedding at Cana and Jesus turns water into wine. Okay, there's your fact. Jesus has dominion over nature. He can turn water into wine. Water can turn into wine, right? I mean, water can be taken into a grapevine. Mixture of sun and water makes grapes. Grapes can be harvested, fermented, and turned into wine. Jesus just did it like that. Jesus has dominion over nature. John specifically tells us in that story that this was the first sign which revealed Jesus' glory. And then there's another piece, another layer that's in there that I love, that I resonate with. And that's when the master of the banquet says, you have saved the best wine for last. Jesus and the new covenant is our best wine that was saved for last. And I just feel like that's just really called out in that gospel. So I want you to take a minute Go to the next slide. And maybe this is going to become more clear after we finish this little study. Why did, you, why did John include this particular story? Because again, he's purposeful in why he does it. And put it through those three filters. Okay, so the next slide. So I love the fact that Jesus takes time to connect with those in need. And we've talked about that already today. And I know some of you are already doing this. So if you look at John verses uh, 1 and through 6a, it says that Jesus went up during a religious festival. But during that religious festival, he took time to go to this pool where the disabled were. He took time out of his religious festival to go see these disabled people. Then he takes it even further. Jesus actually finds this man and he somehow learns that he's been disabled for 38 years. Now, John doesn't tell us how Jesus learned that, right? Jesus might have asked the man. Jesus might have asked other people. Or maybe he discerned it through the Holy Spirit. But the point is, Jesus took time to know this man's situation. And I really feel like that's a challenge to me and to all of us. To how can we do that? I know for me, when, especially when I had little kids, but even now sometimes, getting to church on a Sunday morning was kind of like chaos to the nth degree. And it was probably lucky that I got here without uh, a bad attitude or a worse attitude than I had when I got here. So, um, and those of you with young kids, I think especially, can identify with that. So, but it's important, I think, 
from this story that we seek out meaningful connections with one another when we're at church. And for people like me, I'm an introvert, so I'm not likely to go up and just greet you and say hi and, you know, talk to you and find out all these things. And I'm also aware that there are other people who, for various other reasons, it might not be easy for them to initiate contact. I talked with Nathan about this, so I hope I'm not in trouble, but our, our friends, the Brennans, you know, they can't see. So they can't make eye contact with you. You're going to have to initiate with them if you want to initiate. And I think it's our job to be doing that. But I also think it's our job and our role as we model Jesus to actually initiate and connect with people outside of our church family. And that's the harder one. You've got to put yourself in icky situations sometimes. Our former pastor, Martin, used to joke about going and hanging out at bars. I don't know if he really did or not, but you got to put yourself in icky situations to connect with people. So, yeah, so just be aware of that. Can you give me the next slide, Lars? I think it's this one. So, yeah, so how can you connect, how can you connect with those in need? That's my next reflection question for you. So I get this laser pointer figured out eventually. By the way, if you can't figure out, I love green. And uh, this picture, by the way, is one of my pictures from... Uh, um, it's near Quinault. It's a waterfall near Lake Quinault. So, not to brag or anything, but anyway. <laughs> next, uh, next, next slide. So, in John 5, verse 8, there's another important piece to this story. Jesus heals the man, and he gives him a command right after he heals him. He heals him instantly, right? Then he says three things. First of all, he tells him to get up. Okay? Okay. This means, look, you're new. You're a new creation. We talked about that earlier, right? You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here, and you're free. So get up. Secondly, pick up your mat. Okay. Why? You're not going back. You don't need to be hung up on the stuff that held you down and made you an invalid for all those 38 years. Pick up your mat. And finally, walk. I believe that's basically saying living out the beauty of what God has done in you. By the man walking, that was his testimony that, look, Jesus did this. I'm not that dude laying by the pool for 38 years anymore. I'm walking. Now, the silly part of me, I have to wonder, wonder what it felt like to walk if you haven't walked for 38 years on those cobblestone streets probably had some sore feet, but maybe Jesus fixed that too. I don't know. But I do feel like the man had to walk as part of his testimony. And I'll share with you how I feel that this applies to me, and you'll hear it again at the end. I feel like Jesus told me to get out of the drum booth, stand up, get out of the drum booth, and share. And you see I'm holding on to my crutch, which is these drumsticks, for those of you who didn't know this is my security blanket. Uh, plus, if any of you get too rowdy, I can chunk one at you maybe. But uh, uh, at any rate, that was the, his command to me and the response to the healing that I got. So let's go to the next slide. The next thing I want to call out is verse 9a, or actually B. It should be B, not a typo. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Now, how many of you remember what is the Sabbath command? Who wants to tell me what, what, what we were commanded about the Sabbath? 
I'm sorry? Well, that's what the religious leaders thought. Actually, and I do agree, that's in there, but if you go back and look at Exodus uh, chapter 20, 8 through 10, the first thing that God says is keep the Sabbath holy. The not working comes at the very end of the commandment. So I feel like Jesus was using this doing things on the Sabbath to kind of get in the grill, so to speak, of the religious leaders. Because they had taken the not work on the Sabbath, and then they had added a whole slew of regulations of what not working meant that made it almost impossible for people to do good sometimes, even, you know, if, if they wanted to because it was a Sabbath. And, for example, in this story, one of the things the religious leaders got upset about is that Jesus told the man to pick up his mat and walk. Well, he was carrying something from one domain to another domain, and that violated their Sabbath rules. Not God's Sabbath rules, their Sabbath rules. And what amazes me about these conflicts between Jesus and the religious leader, and you'll see them all through the New Testament, is that people weren't seeing what Jesus was doing. They weren't seeing the glory of God and the kingdom of God. They were hung up on the rules. And I just want to ask us, if you go to the next slide, I guess I don't always have to look back, to consider whether we have any religious rules that might be blinding us to God's glory. And Obviously, the way I'm asking the question, I think there's a yes in there. I'm sure I do. And... Uh, I just think that we all need to pray, prayerfully consider if there's things that are blinding us to God's glory. So, the next section is the section, do you want to get well? And I highlighted this in a different screen color because, again, I like green. Uh, but it's also the heart of the sermon. Now, when I was a young doctor and I first read this verse, I thought, Jesus, that's a rude question to ask somebody who's been disabled for 38 years. Do you want to get well? And I thought all patients want to get well, right? Well, as a doctor and not a doctor, I can tell you that people don't always want to get well. People tend to cling to their condition sometimes because it's a safety place for them. And they can't imagine what it would be like to be in a different place. Could you give me the next slide, Lars? I love the term that's used in Greek for well. And that, of course, Jesus was speaking in Hebrew or Aramaic, but the word, the word in Greek is not huggies. That would be with two Gs. It would be hugies, which is a term in Greek which can mean well, whole, healthy, sound, or even true. And it can refer both to mental and physical condition. And in fact, I've seen one author link this. How many of you say Gesundheit when somebody sneezes? That's a German word. There's some weak linkage between German and Greek. That word essentially in German means wellness. And so anyway, it's, it's an old word that we've used for a long time. I think one of the experiences that I appreciate most about being in Africa is that they have an understanding that wellness is not just about physical health, but also spiritual. As Westerners, as Americans, we tend to think of wellness and health and illness in very naturalistic, very rational terms. 
I have strep throat, I need an antibiotic, I will get well. But if you go to Africa, and I believe this is closer to what was going on in the New Testament, they would have understand illness and wellness to be a spiritual issue too. So <clears throat> as I say that, you can go to the next slide. I just have a lot of bullet points down there. Sorry, that's very small for reading. But essentially, there are a lot of reasons people might not want to get well. A little, little initial confession, between about the age of 15 until the 20s, mid-20s, I was a heavy smoker. I was addicted, there's no lie, I was addicted to cigarettes. And I knew I needed to quit. I knew it was bad for my health. I had people in my family who I could see that in. But I was afraid to quit because I could not imagine who I would be if I didn't have that cigarette in my hand smoking. In fact, I told Stacy this, and she still thinks it's funny. When I did quit, I would go running over lunch, and our, where I worked at was in the busy, busy traffic-wise, right? And we'd often be running by idling cars, and I sometimes had the urge, even after I quit smoking, to go suck on an exhaust pipe to get that, to get that hypoxia, the low oxygen and the carbon monoxide that was going to help me cope with not smoking. So I understand that it's hard. I think addictions can be really hard to break. I think sometimes we can't imagine what our future would be like if we are well. This man is disabled for 38 years. Who in here is under 38 years old? All right. So this guy's been disabled longer than all you've been alive, okay? And for those of you who are over 38, think back to 1986, January of 1986. Who were you then, what were you doing, and how have you changed since then? Here's my point. The man had been disabled for a lifetime. Chances are he was disabled from childhood, maybe even from birth, because the life expectancy back then wasn't that long. So he'd been disabled for an entire life. I bet he couldn't even imagine what it would be like to be well. But I'm going to tell you something else. I think he also had put his faith in the wrong place. His faith was in getting into that pool first. What can he do to get first into that pool? That was, that was wrong. And I think also the fact that he thought the pool was his healing is a misplaced faith too. And I think it's important for us to see that in this story because I think that's part of what John's trying to teach us. In fact, it's interesting, <clears throat> later on in this passage, Jesus meets the man again, and he gives one of those standard, don't sin anymore, you know, commands to him. Well, <clears throat> we don't know what else this man did during his life. The only thing we know is that he told Jesus that he, couldn't, he wasn't healed because he couldn't get into the pool. Now, I wonder if that's what his sin was, was being putting his faith in that pool instead of the one who could heal him. So just think about that for reflection. So now the hard part. Like Ryan said, you can go to the next slide. Uh, when this became real for me, and go, go on to the next one, Lars, you heard us sing today, this is my story. Well, this is my story, but really it's not my story. It's God's story in me, okay? I mean, it's true. And I'm going to be bold and share my testimony. I'm going to give you the G-rated version for anybody that's really interested and is a good friend. I can give you the heavier version later, but um, I was born uh, to a Christian man and woman, 
um, the oldest of three boys. And they were both very active as youth leaders in the Baptist church. Uh, I came along about 10 years after they had been, been married. So they waited, or God made them wait for a while before I came along. One of my earliest memories is being at church, singing to God be the glory at the top of my lungs in my little kid voice when I was maybe two, three years old. So I was bought up in the church, and I'm very grateful for that. And at age six, I did the altar call thing because we did one every Sunday at church, and I went to uh, come forward because it was one of the warmest, best feelings I had that God was calling me to be saved. I was baptized in one of those, if you've ever been to a Southern Baptist church, one of those lovely baptismals that are like 95-degree water, and they've got the River Jordan painting in the back of them, and it was just a beautiful experience. So this is a picture of our church directory from about that time. That's me. If you, if you can't tell, the ears ought to be the, uh, the, uh, the cue. They're almost that big now again. I guess it'll get worse as I get older. Uh, and that's my family. So I was baptized, and we stayed active, and I continued to grow in Christ through the boys ministry, which was called Royal Ambassadors. Anybody else in here ever a Royal Ambassador? It may be more of a Southern Baptist thing. It's kind of like a combination of Awana and Boy Scouts melded into one thing. So we did a lot of Bible teaching. We did a lot of camping, hiking, and that kind of stuff. Really cool program. But then something happened to me at age 10. On Christmas Eve, when I was 10 years old, my dad was admitted to the hospital with pneumonia. And the extended family helped us to have a good Christmas, but about 10 days after he went into the hospital, daddy died. 47 years old, left a widow who didn't drive, didn't have a job, and three little boys. And being the oldest son, I was kind of told by a lot of well-meaning people, you gotta be strong, got to be the man of the family now. I don't even know if I cried at my dad's funeral, but I'll tell you, I cried out to God because I was convinced wrongly that God must not like me, that God hated me because he took my daddy from me. And I so appreciate Ryan sharing a couple of weeks ago when you were sharing from James that God is not mad at you. It was a blessing to me to have that. So, that caused me to start to drift away from God a little bit. But I stayed engaged in church. We, between my eighth and ninth grade year, we formed a youth praise team who did a musical ba based on the uh, um, Sermon on the Mount. And we got in our little blue school bus, actually big blue school bus, bus and left San Antonio and toured Texas and ended up at a place called Glorieta, New Mexico, which is up in the mountains near Santa Fe. I was the drummer, surprise although I was a very timid drummer at that age. And some of the churches wouldn't let us play drums or have guitars, so then I had to sing. That was even more scary. But anyway, and I remember never being closer to God than I was up in the mountains in New Mexico, out in the trees in the mountains. But our family drifted away from church. Some of it was, we felt, I think, burdened by some of the additional restrictions, like uh, long hair. I think it's ironic now that in my old age, I went back to long hair when it was one of my rebellious things when I was a young kid. I don't think I'm being rebellious now. But 
I drifted away from God, and it really accelerated around 10th grade, around the same time, incidentally, that I quit playing drums. So thank you, God, for giving me drums back. Um, and as I went into college, I just became more self-centered. I won't, I won't bore you with all the details. As far as man's laws, I very rarely broke those, but if it was God's laws, I broke them a lot. I was very prodigal. And if I could do a do-over, I'd take that time back. But I have a feeling that God put that into my life for a reason, so I guess I really wouldn't take it back. Well, Stacy and I met in medical school in 1986. She was part of my study group um, for physiology and I think maybe for anatomy too, maybe biochemistry, yeah, all those good courses. And we were married in 1989 in a Methodist church, and we continued to attend the Methodist church, basically me trying to keep my wife from being aggravated at me for not going to church. But at least I got to sing from hymnals, and I got to hear God's word. And then something amazing happened. In 1996, we accepted a job out here in Puyallup. And I thought it was a temporary job. I thought we were just going to be here for a minute, you know, a few minutes to get stable and then find a better job somewhere out here in the Puget Sound. Well, God had other plans. Uh, one of the formula, baby formula representatives who came to our office was a man named J.C. Williams. I know there's some of you in this room who remember J.C., yep. And J.C. really adopted us as a... Uh, spiritual couple. By the way, I neglected to mention earlier, Stacy's also a doctor. Uh, so when I was showing the family side, I forgot, we have a lot of doctors in our family. I forgot about that. She and I were practicing together at that time. Uh, JC came and adopted us into his family and invited us eventually to come to uh, church with him. And I found it really kind of scary. I was like, Elam Evangelical Free Church. Okay, who is Elam? Does free mean we don't have to tithe? And at that point in my life, the word evangelical was like a bad word to me, okay? I mean, it was like a bad word at that time. But we came and we stayed, and here we are all these years later. I don't even want to try to calculate how long. I guess it would be about the same time as my oldest daughter because she was, she was baby dedicated in this church. And again, like I told you earlier, I've been blessed beyond measure with so many godly people, both then and now. J.C., and his wife, Diane, took Stacy and I under their wing and led us through a, a Bible study through, drumroll, the Gospel of John. And J.C. basically helped me to turn back to my father as the prodigal and come back to my father and see him running to me. But if I'm honest, I still struggle with my past. And I have a lot of anxiety and shame about it. And one of the things this does for me is it keeps me awake at night uh, a lot of times. And one of the things I do when I'm struggling with this shame or anxiety is I'll reflect on a Bible story, usually a Jesus story, and try to imagine I'm at the story. Now, I never imagine that as anybody other than as just an observer. I'm an outsider, maybe one of the multitude who's looking in. Some of you may think I'm crazy. Maybe that's a weird idea to you, but it's actually a scriptural idea. If you look at Psalm 63, David says that he meditates on God during the night. And my favorite, Psalm 77, which is a psalm of Asaph. Basically, Asaph is bemoaning how he feels rejected by God, but then he 
closes the psalm by remembering all of God's great deeds. By the way, Asaph we talked about in September. You remember he was the leader of the first worship team that David put together when they bought the Ark of the Covenant into the tent. And, I might add, Asaph, the worship leader, played cymbals, so I feel like I'm in good company. Not that I want to lead worship. Okay, but, um, so, that's my way of doing it. And then one night a few months ago, I was praying through this particular passage, and instead of being the outsider who's watching what's going on in the pool, I felt very strongly Jesus looking at me and saying, do you want to be well? And my first reaction was, I'm in the best shape I've been in like, I don't know, decades. I've lost weight. I'm stronger. You know, I'm sure I've got achy, you know, creaky joints, but I mean, I'm 64. Why not, right? But then it came to me right away that it was, no, we're not talking about your physical health. We're talking about your spiritual and emotional health. And that's where I talked to Ryan, and this turned in from a five-minute spiritual share to what you guys heard today. And I wanted to start off by thanking you guys for bearing with me, because I can't believe it. I barely used my notes at all. Thank you, Lord, for that, because uh, we would have been here for three hours, and I've done that before. So, and we're not, we're not a Congolese church, so that wouldn't go, uh, go well. But I do believe, getting back on a more serious note, that when Jesus asked this question, do you want to get well, it's an opportunity for us to fix our trust on him because he's the solution for your condition, not the pool, okay? So I'd like team worship to come back up, and they're going to help move us into a little bit of a time of prayer. And as, I want, as we close, I want to actually have you take a few moments and pray silently with me and ask yourself if Jesus is asking you if you want to get well. And I do believe there's at least one person in this room that he's asking that question of besides me. Maybe more. I don't know. Or maybe it is just me. It's not my business. I already gave that up to God. I don't even need to know. I just need to know that if God's talking to you, you need to listen. First and, first, first and most importantly, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that's the ultimate healing, okay? You've got to believe in Jesus and that he has the ability to save you. And the cool thing about once Jesus saves you, what, what your was, was, doesn't matter anymore. I'm kind of paraphrasing that from The Chosen for those of you who are fans of The Chosen. What your was, was, doesn't matter anymore. And I want you to just realize that if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't placed your faith in him, now's a good day to do it. And I'm going to ask in a minute for our pastor and maybe a couple elders to come up and be up here if you want to meet and pray with them. But you know, if you're saved, it doesn't mean you don't need to be well. You know, certainly I consider that I'm saved, but yet I think every day I've got to ask Jesus to make me well. It's a journey. It's not a. It's not an all or none. I believe that Jesus will reveal things to me and to you over the length of your walk with him that allow you to become more holy and more like him. He doesn't dump it on us all at once, which is good because I sure wouldn't have wanted to deal with all, 
all my stuff at once, for sure. So, are you still clinging to things which are some sort of useless hope like the pool at Bethesda? Are you so comfortable in your own mess that you don't trust Jesus to fix it for you? Have you been stuck for so long that you don't even realize you need to be fixed, need to be well? Do you fear healing because you can't see what your life would look like despite the healing? You can't even envision what it would look like, like my story about the smoking, where I couldn't even envision what it would be like to not be a smoker and not addicted to nicotine. Can you leave your current situation behind? Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Like I said, for me, it was stand up, get out of the drum booth, and share. So I just want us to bow and pray silently for a moment or two. And again, anybody that wants to come up to the front, either for prayer or just to worship, while we're doing that is fine. And then in a few moments, I'll close us, and we'll finish off the the, uh, the uh, morning. Jesus. Yes.